I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Intercooler podcast is sponsored by JBR Capital, one of the UK's leading car finance specialists. Now, we only partner with like-minded organizations who really understand what it means to be a car enthusiast. And JBR Capital is a perfect fit for us. It's run by people who really love cars. And importantly, vehicle finance is all JBR Capital does. That alone is what the company exists to do. So whether you're looking to fund a classic sports car, supercar or hypercar, see what JBR Capital can do for you. And it's not just about very high-end, expensive unobtainium. In fact, the minimum borrowing is £25,000 and the average £80,000. Head to JBR Capital on social media or jbrcapital.com online and tell them the intercooler sent you. Right, let's get on with this week's podcast. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 103 of the podcast, everybody. I'm Dan Prosser with Andrew Frankel. A busy one this week, Andrew. Lots of stuff to talk about. I think top of the agenda needs to be the Porsche Cayman GT4 RS, which we're not going to review in detail here, are we? Because, well, our, our full review is on the Intercooler app and there are a thousand videos on YouTube. Um, but I think we can <laughs> talk about your experience of the car a little bit more. Um, pretty good, is it? Well, course, I mean, yeah, I mean, and, you know, I, don't, I don't think you could be a car enthusiast and not, and not read the, I think, the universal acclaim that's rained down on the GT4 RS's uh, head in the last uh, week since the embargo lifted. I did something a little bit different um, because um, if you read my story on the app, you'll know that I drove up there and back from, to, so it was all done at Anglesey, uh, the circuit and on the roads around it. Uh, and I drove there and back from my home um, in the sort of um, southeast Wales borders in a GT4. I was just thought, I just really thought it would be an interesting comparison to make. Um, and yeah, I mean, the GT3 RS is, it, it, I tell you what's different about it and what's so interesting about it is all the previous RSs have always been 
about suspension and aero and getting around tracks and that sort of thing. They, they, you know, they very rarely had you know big power hikes or anything like that. And this is completely the reverse. So this is what makes it different to the normal RS treatment, because you know the the chassis is actually really pretty similar. Um, of course, it's got bespoke spring rates and um, uh, anti roll bars and damper specification and that sort of thing. But you know, if you drive the two round a track, um, you know they feel pretty similar on the road. The GT4 rides a little better than G4S, but the G4S rides fine. So you know the the the, the chassis changes are they're not inconsequential, but they're small. Um, but it's that engine and that gearbox and how the two together, um, shortening the ratios in the gearbox, lowering the final drive. And then, uh, and also, um, and I didn't really kind of figure this out until I was up there. And of course, it's obvious when you think about it with that engine being right behind your head. Yeah. Because usually we use that, used to that engine being slung out the back. So it's actually, you know, a reasonable distance from you when it's right behind your head and when they put those air intakes. Uh, in those rear quarter lights i mean the noise i mean the noise is just <laughs> absolutely ridiculous i mean more ridiculous than you know than any other <coughs> excuse me gt car i've driven um gt3 rs or whatever um it's just i've, I've no, don't think i've ever known a road car make that much noise in the cabin um and it is of course the most extraordinary i mean it spins to nine thousand rpm maximum powers at eight four um so yeah that i mean that's what makes it so different to the gt4 but really you're only going to use that if you're going to be on the track a lot um and if i had that car as my predominantly road car and the ride and the refinement are actually good enough for that because if you're not absolutely flat strap on the throttle um the engine doesn't do all that it's it's fine i would always be thinking about what i was missing i would always be thinking that there's this little bit up there um, which is absolutely extraordinary. And, you know, uh, if I wasn't on the track, I would, um, I'd be missing it. Whereas the GT4, because it only goes to 8,000 and it's only got 414 horsepower as opposed to 493. Um, it's just the most brilliant road car. It was just the most one. And, and, and the best thing I can tell you about the GT4 is having gone up there in the GT4 and then spent all that time in the GT4 RS, both on the road and going round and round the track the following morning, very, very early. I got back into the GT4 and did the reverse route. And I always go completely cross-country. I go straight to the middle. didn't go on an inch of motorway. And it was no worse on the way down than on the way up. So the GT4 RS experience had done nothing to dilute the joy of driving the GT4. Um, and actually, if the intercooler ever makes us a huge amount of money, I think that's what I'd go and do. I think what I'd do is I think I'd just go and get one of those GT4s. Um, if I kind of like retired from the business or whatever, and I needed a daily driver, and I stick, I take the the Cup Twos off it because they just limit what you can do with the car. There was a time very early in that morning when we, I was going over through Snowdonia, um, and suddenly the car was getting a bit loose, and I couldn't work out why. And some for some reason, from Hollyhead, where it was like seven degrees when I got in the car, it got down to a degree, and it was still dry. But, but you know what Cup 2s are like. You know, they have to not only have, you know, dry or, you know, dampish conditions, but they hate the cold. Uh, whereas if you'd been on set of 4Ss, it would have been absolutely fine. So I would have just enjoyed driving the car more and that sort of thing. But really, that's about it. I, you know, I thought it was fantastic. So the GT4 RS is 
an amazing thing. Um, it acted so amazing, and actually, um, as I said on the little vid that I did, it made me question whether you should spend the extra whatever it is. I think it's I think I said it's fifteen grand on the vid. I think it's twenty twenty three grand in actuality um, on a GT three. Now the GT three does have that double wishbone front suspension. It does have rear wheel steering. It's got a bit more rubber on the road. Um, it's you know it's a slightly more senior car, but for just sheer fun, well, I don't know. I really don't know. I need to drive the two of them together. But um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you are you are you are planning to do that? Are you GT4 RS and GT3 together? You, you concluded your review saying that perhaps that's the comparison you should really make. Yeah. Do you think you are going to try yeah, and I think, get them I, together? I, I, at think, some point? I think when Porsche gets um, a right-hand drive GT4 RS press car, um, because you know, up in angles, and this this is the amazing thing about Porsche the way they do things is they like they get one car over. And they get, well, I mean, they don't get the whole press because not very many of us get to go up and do it. But, you know, they, they, they choose a few people who they kind of, I think were basically chosen on the basis of who's least likely to crash. At least I hope that's the basis. Um, <laughs> and then this thing, you know. The, well, I wasn't invited, I'll point oh, out. I think it was it, only, only because I was already going and they said so they had that base covered. <laughs> but, um, you know, they'll go and rent a track for three or four days um, and they'll put a journalist in, in the morning, a journalist in the afternoon, and this thing will be absolutely flogged. Um, and they'll have Richie, who we all know, um, who works in the Porsche press garage, who'll be there, who'll, you know, change tyres and just make sure that there aren't any problems. But of course, there aren't any. And it just, it gets absolutely mullered from sun up to sundown um, for days on end. Um, and then it gets on a truck and goes back to Stuttgart. So I'll, I'll do the GT4 RS and the GT3 um once there's one back in the country to look forward to it oh good there you go something to look forward to and of course the big advantage of the gt3 apart from rubber on the road the double wishbone front you can have a manual gearbox you can have um, a manual gearbox so, as you yeah, can with the gt4 it, yeah well do you know what i was wondering as well um i think i saw from some of the pictures that porsche also had a cayman gts up there i don't know if you had a go in it while you were there no it wasn't there when i was there um, but I have done, I have done a GTS GT4 comparison before. So I've done that, I've done that story. Um, and it's interesting. I, I spent 99% of the time I did that. And that was actually entirely on road. Uh, I spent 99% of the time thinking I'd have the GTS because I like the fact that it looks more understated. It's obviously a bit more affordable. Um, and you know, it, it tires. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but although you can, you can get a 4S for a, uh, a GT4, although it's a, it's a, like, oh. it, well, it, 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 there is one, but it's an aftermarket thing. So you have to get, buy your car on its cup twos and then buy another set of tires. You can't have it delivered, um, on 4S's, which is a pity. Anyway, uh, I, I did that comparison and I thought almost until the last minute I was going to give it to the GTS. And then there was just one, you know, you, you know, you do these things and the photography is done and you think, okay, I'll just go for one last blast over whichever road it is you're using. Um, and I did it in the GT4 and it was just, it was just enchanting. And I just thought, actually, it, 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 it there is a difference here. Um, and it's one that if I had a GTS, I'd kind of feel that I was missing. Um, and certainly if I was ever going to go on a track, and I guess I would, I'd definitely want a GT4 than a gts but it's very very close and anybody who did decide to get a gts instead of, instead of a gt4 i understand completely and, and actually quite a lot of a lot of me agrees with you i'd be very tempted to have just the gts actually because i like as you say i like its understated looks um it's probably a bit more usable every day isn't it and i, th- I think it would just it would just do me well it's, it's a good chunk more affordable as well so that that car is high on what is it about 10 grand more affordable something like that something like yeah. that yeah maybe 
Maybe it's a little bit more. But the, the, so, do you know what? Every single time we talk about a Porsche GT product, yep. the same old argument comes up about can you actually buy one? Um, do you have to be best mates with the dealer principal to get an alligator? You know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just impossible to escape, isn't it? And presumably, that demand for the RS will outstrip supply, will it? Uh I don't know because Porsche never say in advance how many they're going to make. You know, remember, these are these are not limited edition cars. Um, you know, sometimes car manufacturers play funny games and say it was a limited edition car, but we won't tell you what the limit is, which you mean means it's limited only to the number they think they, think they can sell. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Porsche will always say, um, you know, anyone can. Uh, express an interest and you know but 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 they what they say is that we you know th- these cars come in slots don't they uh, and they'll build all the gt4s and then all the gt4 rs's and then i think once that's done they'll go into building gt3 rs's which is coming i think towards the end of the year um and so <clears throat> you know they can only build as many cars as they can build in the time that they have um and of course they're going to give them to their best customers i mean that's not unusual um or 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 unexpected but it is extremely frustrating because you know how do you become a best customer if you don't get to have any of these things i i I guess you 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 buy normal caymans and 911s and that sort of thing i i strongly suspect particularly given the reception it has got that the gt4 rs and this porsche (coughs) is going to ramp up production in a way that i don't think it would want to or even can I suspect you're going to have every bit as big a problem with this as you'd ever have with a GT3 or a GT3 RS. I think it's a great idea in uh, in principle, in practice. I suspect it will be very very difficult for, let's say, you, you never you have no history of Porsche buying at all, and you walk into a into a dealer and go, "I'd like to order a GT4 RS." It would be an interesting conversation to have <clears throat> because they'll have their allocations um, and they'll know in advance exactly who those cars are going to, and they'll know that there'll be always more people who want them than there are cars they're likely to get so i think it will be very difficult and we'll probably see cars being flipped won't we for big margins which again adds to the frustration but maybe that's just the world we live in um so i I think this was probably true of you as well so i first heard about the gt4 rs five or six years ago um in south africa on a launch on a porsche launch was Um, it was i on a certain test yes you were 911 gts launch it was and a certain Porsche test driver, even now I hesitate to name him, um, you can probably guess who, but he, he spilled the beans, didn't yeah. he? Um, I think someone asked a, asked a straight question, he gave a straight answer. As he um, always does. And it was, it was all but confirmed that there would finally be a, a GT4 RS, yeah. um, an RS version of the Cayman. Uh, I was working for Evo at the time. I wrote a very short news story for the magazine, which was my job. Six months later, I saw Andreas Preuning at a, dis- a different event, um, introduced myself, and he said, ah, so you're the one who's writing about the GT4 RS already. Um, and he actually he was not best pleased at all. But you're just doing your job. If, if somebody from Porsche, or who is retained by Porsche, tells you something and doesn't say, by the way, Dan, everything I'm about to tell you is off the record and you can't print a word of it, I mean, there is a certain sort of honour amongst thieves, isn't there? Sometimes you and I get told stuff and they don't say it's off the record, but because you know the person who's telling it to you, because you have a relationship with them and you understand because of that relationship, the context in which you're being told, 
because otherwise it'd be pretty boring if every time you, this you know whoever it was opened their mouth they had to say oh this is off the record this is off the record you know there, there's there's certain stuff you get told which you know you shouldn't but something like that if you ask you're not being told this apropos of nothing but you ask as a journalist a question and from an official porsche uh spokesperson you get a response why shouldn't you print that that's your it's job. The job um and we're here you know, to serve the reader yeah, aren't and we? if you so, don't do that you're not a journalist yeah i understand that it's frustration frustrating from their point of view but that's the game isn't it um it, I, but i was just amazed that i mean that must have been i think that was probably 2016 maybe towards the end so five and a half years ago yeah they knew this thing was coming yeah. along um, so they they do just strategize a long long way ahead. Yeah, don't which they? means they probably know what's in the product plan. And well, they do know what's coming up in twenty twenty eight, don't they? So so what yeah. that means, for yeah. instance, is I asked someone from Porsche recently um, whether there was going to be a um, a GT two RS in when the second generation of the nine nine two comes to end, which is you know we haven't even got to to the end of the first generation of the nine nine two yet, um, and the response was. Nothing's been decided. Blah, blah, blah. Of course it has. Of course it, <laughs> it has. has. <laughs> they know exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they know exactly what it will be. Yeah. They're prob- it's probably running now. And, you know, it's the way the world works, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, let's move away from Porsche. I want to talk about... It's uh, predictable. Alpine. <laughs> but I want to talk about the F1 team. <laughs> um, I want to talk about the F1 team because uh, I was at Enstone. I was there to drive the new or the revised A110, which is actually still embargoed, so I can't really talk about that at the moment. Um, What's it like? But I can talk about... <laughs> can you imagine? Um, but, I, but I can talk about the, the factory. Um, we had a tour of the F1 facility, which has been there a long time now. You know, it was Renault very recently. It was Lotus, wasn't it, for a short stint, which... I still don't really understand. Well, it was it was it there. was a it was sort of it was Lotus insofar as you know Aston Martin's Aston Martin, isn't it? It's a it's a it's yeah. a branding exercise. Yeah. It was a name over the door, wasn't yeah. it? Um, and it was Renault before that, and Benetton before that. So yeah, you just start thinking about all the big names who have walked through those doors. Absolutely, Schumacher, yeah. and Danny Rick, um, Alonso. Yeah, it's. I just I love visiting these places, and um, you know you hear about them so often. So to get to go and see them is actually a real privilege. And I've seen a handful of F1 factories now, not many, but I've been to Red Bull, I've been to McLaren, um, now Alpine. And whenever I look around them, I always feel like like we're just seeing a tiny fraction of it. Um, of course, there are parts that they're not showing us, but actually we're, we're seeing most of it. But I I don't know what it is. I always get this sense that there must be you know, another five more units the same size around the back, all doing other bits and pieces. But I think it's because I've been to lots of car factories and they're enormous. And these, they are factories, but in fact, they're only building two cars a year, aren't they? Um, So actually we are seeing the whole thing. Um, And, and it's, it's really surprising when you walk through and you go to, they call them the race bays, which is where the, the cars are actually assembled. Um, and you just think, right there, that is where Fernando Alonso's car lives. Yeah. You know, when it's not off at a race, it's right there. And it's, I always have to remind myself that we're seeing the actual thing, not some sort of simulation of it. Um, and we, so we started off in, the, in this manufacturing facility. We went into the fabrication shop. 
um, where they, they fabricate metal parts. Nothing to do with the engine, nothing to do with the gearbox, because that's, um, that's done separately. Um, but as we walked up to this, this fab shop, this fabrication shop, we saw a man with a, a little hammer, you know, a little metal working yeah. hammer, working on a bench on an anvil, just tapping away. Tap, 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 really? Tap, Old school. And a little a bit of exhaust, a bit of exhaust pipe that he was working on. Yeah, really old school. And then you look around and there are lathes and there are mills and there are, you know, those handheld grinding machines as well. And it's like, you just can't believe that in the current age of Formula One, yeah. this is how they still go and make stuff. Okay, what, what surprises me about this is I'm just trying to think, okay, you said engine and gearbox aside, so, so you can't include those. What's metal on the car? Exhaust. That's the, that's the main one. So, yeah, but that'll um, be, that'll presumably, that'll mean, that'll be titanium. It must be, I guess. In canal. In canal. And titanium, yeah. they, use, yeah. they use both, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, yeah, so, so, so not much. I mean, I don't know. Not, not much. Must, I guess, I don't know. I don't even know how they screw these things together, but they must have fixings, and they're probably metal, too. Um, mm. Yeah. But, I mean, what I do know, I don't want to get sidetracked, but what I do know um, about materials used on Formula One cars is I did a, I did a sort of deep dive into the Valkyrie a few um, months ago. And they were talking about the materials they're using there. And they were saying this material has never been used in a car before, oh, apart from Formula One. And this material, the only material better than used of this is used in space stations, oh, and Formula One. And and they were yeah. talking about <laughs> everything. You know, basically, the level of technology that goes into a Formula One car now is at least um, the level of technology that goes into spacecraft. And they look at everything mm. down to that level of detail. And I find it, I find it somehow charming and, and, and weirdly reassuring that still there comes a time when push comes to mm. shove, hit it with a bloody hammer. <laughs> Yeah, and it's a, it's a skilled worker tapping away, tap, yep. tap, 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 using his eye, getting it just yeah, right. But he's still hitting it with a hammer. I was, yeah, <laughs> I was really surprised to see that. Apparently, it's unusual for an F1 factory to still do all that on site. Um, but yeah, it definitely still happens. Um, but then, of course, you've got the flip side. And right next to that fabrication shop, you've got this other facility with those enormous and incredibly sophisticated machines, the size of a small room, yeah. that they're sort of 3D printing parts and stuff, aren't they? Um, and they're just constantly working 24 hours a day, nonstop, just producing all these little parts. Um, and next to that, you've got the, the carbon fiber clean room where they lay up the carbon fiber before it goes into, uh, into the autoclave. Um, and excluding the carbon fiber, those two facilities, they make 50,000 parts per year. Wow. Um, and again, not including the engine and gearbox. So um, that's 50,000 50, parts, not 50,000 part numbers, presumably. So that's a... Parts, parts. yeah, it's parts. There are, I think, I think there are 16,000 parts on a car. Um, so that's 16,000 part numbers. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, maybe, that number sticks in my head. It might be wrong. Um, and then upstairs, immediately above um, the carbon fibre uh, workshop, you've got the design office, um, where 200 designers work, 200 design engineers. Um, and you walk in, you see these 
rows and rows and rows of desks, almost all of them empty at that point, the, at the time that I visited, with these blank screens. Um, I think most of them empty because I guess some of them are travelling with the, the F1 team at the yeah, moment. Yeah, they'll be out in the Middle yeah, some are still working from home as a hangover from COVID. Yeah. Um, and I think, other, I think others are going to be moved from somewhere else to here. Um, and I think some more are going to be recruited. So those desks soon, I think, will be mostly filled. And there'll just be rows and rows and rows of people designing, drawing parts. And we were told it takes 22,000 individual drawings just to get a new car to the Barcelona test. By the end of the car's development, and that might only last until the summer, so it could be six or seven months, a total of 35,000 drawings will have been produced. So the, from 22,000 to 35,000 drawings, so getting on for double to purely to develop the car through the course of the season. And also two cars can go round in circles for an hour and a half on <laughs> 23 Sundays a year. It is extraordinary. One of the things I would like to do, and I'd go and do it, A, if I thought anybody would tell me, and B, if my brain worked that way, um, but sadly neither is the case, I'd just like to go and spend a day with someone who will tell me about carbon fibre and the way that it's used in Formula 1. I always used to think that carbon fibre is pretty much carbon fibre, and I knew there were different sorts. But when I did this this Valkyrie thing, I suddenly realised that... The world of carbon fibre, the different ways you can lay it up, the different weaves, um, the different patterns, how it's used, why it's used, um, the difference between cheap carbon fibre and expensive carbon fibre is at least as big as the deep difference between cheap carbon fibre and any other material you might want to use in a car. Uh, it is, I, I, mean, I found it absolutely fascinating. I was frustrated only by my lack of ability to understand it um, because... I mean, I, I, one question which somebody probably would tell you is how many different kinds of carbon fibre do you use on one Formula One car? You know, 10 years ago, I probably said, oh, I don't know, one, two, directional, mm. non-directional. We, I suspect it might be 100. We were told it was about 15. Fi- we were told it was about 15. About 15. Okay. But then, but then that's, that's just the weaves and they use it in an enormous number of different ways. You know, you might have one layer, you might have several yeah. Um, you might you might bake it differently. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and that's it's, just it's, a Formula One, which will bear no relation whatever to the way that carbon fibre is used in a road car. Yeah, it's a fascinating subject. Yeah, it's actually it's a, it's a versatile material, isn't it? It can be used, and don't forget, not in F one, but in the the road car world, it's used cosmetically. Yes, isn't it? Um, and that's a totally different kettle of fish because it has to look perfect. Yes. Um, it's yeah, it's an incredibly complicated yeah. thing. So, so yes, yeah, so, so I mean, it, I mean, even that's worth pointing out, isn't it? If you know, if you get into into a car, you know, okay, fine, they're they're like cosmetic carbon fiber trim you get on your dashboard. But even you know the cosmetic, if you I don't know, you've got some hypercar with a carbon fiber rear wing on it, the carbon you see isn't the carbon that's really doing the job. That is there to look pretty, mm. and there's the structural mm. stuff beneath yeah. it which actually does the job. Um, mm. Although I actually think that raw carbon fiber, you know, there are certain cars where you can see it. You can see it in a Senna sometimes. When you open the doors on the Senna, you just you just see bare, mm. matte, raw carbon fiber. Um, I think that looks really cool. It's not shiny and glossy. Yeah, and, it's cool. And, and, and yeah. very sort of, you know, um, what was the sort of geometric shapes. It just, but it just looks proper. Yeah, sort of chopped, isn't yeah. it? It's chopped carbon fiber yeah. and it looks fantastic. Um, 
So the only other thing that really stuck out from this factory tour was when you walk into reception, you see Fernando Alonso's 2005 championship winning Renault. Yeah. And then next to it, uh, the other side of the hallway, you see a mock-up, actually, of this year's Alpine. Um, and you're just... The instant you walk through the door, you're just struck by the size difference. You're looking from one to the other, thinking... Okay, but the, the the mock-up Alpine, that's what, 1.5 times scale, is it? Because it's a display car and you want people to... No, that's that's the size of the real thing. And it's I could not believe how much bigger it was. I did a an Instagram reel, just sort of with my yeah, phone, no, you know, switching it. from one to the yeah. other. So you can get a sense. Um, and of course, every time you do something like that, someone will say, is it because one's closer? No, they were, they were the, more or less the same distance away. But you, you, you know, if you walked through that doorway, you would think the exact same thing immediately. It's just that obvious, um, and and particularly the size of the wheels and tires. Now that you look at the rear wheel and tire, it's vast, and you think, how can one person possibly yank that thing off? It's about twenty-five kilos, own? isn't it? I mean, they're properly heavy. It's a lump. Yeah. It's a lump. And that's what we're seeing slower pit stops yeah. this year, or well, certainly we did in the first race, didn't we? And I, I can understand why. Um, and finally, you, you, you sort of step back and look at this current F1 car. Um, and actually, I don't think this year's cars are any bigger than last year's, maybe even a bit smaller. I would need to check. But, um, you know, the F1 cars have been this sort of size for a while now. And you just think, how on earth do you race one of these things alongside 19 others? Yeah around Monaco or something yeah, like that. it's nuts, isn't it? It's, it's truly mind One thing that did occur to me when I, when I saw that reel and those two cars, they're 17 years apart, aren't they? Um, now, to me, they don't look that... At all. If you, I'm, just trying to, I'm just trying to think of another 17-year period in history. So let us take... Let's go from 1957 to 1974. Okay? 1957 Formula One car. It's a Maserati 250F, yeah? yeah? Um, it's basically mm. it's a cigar tube on wheels it's high it looks ungainly uh it's on these spindly little tires and it's a very clean shape because all they know as far as the wind is concerned is you want to avoid it make the car slippery 17 years on from that you have got a ferrari 312t massive slicks huge wings big airbox uh shovel no i mean they could be 200 years apart frankly and yet, if you look today from that from that Renault two thousand and five to, to to twenty two, you know, if you just showed someone who knew nothing about Formula One and said which which one of these two from the outside looks older, you know, some might actually say, "Oh, I don't know," or "There's not much in it," or you know, they might get it right, but 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 not begin to get any, the, the the period. So I wonder whether Formula One design is sort of like turning. You know, the shark is 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 meant to have stopped evolving millions yeah. of years ago because it's re- it, it has reached its hydrodynamically optimal shape and i just wonder whether formula one's going the same way because they're just i know all the little details change and everything else but compared to how they used to change it's night and day isn't it mm. yeah they've they've figured it out that's the thing isn't it and airflow is airflow yeah and they've they've got their heads around it yeah um so yeah and i, I suppose what what i would add is that Someone could say that both are Formula One cars, and and to someone who didn't hadn't had no idea about racing, they'd go, "Yeah, I understand that." But as you say, if you chose two cars seventeen years apart from the fifties and the seventies, you'd think you were looking at different categories, you would. wouldn't you? You think they were built for 
A, a totally exactly. different discipline. And there's probably... I'm just trying to... Yes, actually. I think Graham Hill raced both. I'm trying to remember when he made his debut. It was certainly in the 50s. Maybe it was 58. 57, 58. And he was still racing in 74. So he raced both. That is amazing. Yeah. That really is amazing how the technology changed yeah. during his time. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. Well, thank you, Alpine, for letting me have a poke around your factory. It's really enjoyable. Um, let's just do a few minutes on Ferrari SUV. Yeah. Because how, how do you pronounce its name, please? Puro Sang. Puro Sang. Is it? Puro Sang. I have no idea. And is that a, a working title? Or I think it's a working title. Do we think? I, I always get very insecure about mm. pronouncing names ever since um, the, 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 <laughs> the predecessor to the Aventador. How, how are we pronouncing that? No. Murcielago? Not Murcielago. No, I think you're right. I think it is Murcielago, <laughs> isn't it? I think you're right. Um, pure, pure and is it a th rather than a s? Oh, God, I don't know. Puro sung? Pure, anyway, but pure No. Uh, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Who knows? It means thoroughbred in Italian, doesn't it? I believe. Okay. okay what's the question? Uh, well, I'll just explain. So Ferrari um, posted a very shadowy teaser image, didn't they, on their Instagram account? Yeah, which we brightened up. And you... <laughs> You being sneaky, you screenshotted it and then brightened it up. And actually, it just looks like that's what the image was always supposed to yeah. be. Um, it hasn't suddenly gone grainy and, you know, distorted it. It looks right. And, yeah, so you get a reasonably good impression of what the thing will look like. And we did see, didn't we, those very grainy shots um, that someone's clearly snapped on their phone. Apparently from the factory. Yeah. We don't know if they're, yeah. if, if they're real or not, but they certainly looked it. Um, and it's just sort of opened up that whole conversation, hasn't it, about traditional supercar manufacturers building SUVs. And Ferrari, but, and Ferrari in particular, the, the, the ultimate supercar manufacturer. Yeah. Um, mm. but, you, but you made the point, it's a publicly traded company, and the instant that happens, the purpose for existing changes. It's a Faustian pact. You give up your right to self-determination the moment you take the public's money. And that's the way it should be. And, you know, and so you, you can't do what, you know, Enzo was doing, actually even what De Montezemolo was doing, which was focusing on the long-term future of the brand, building the brand, maintaining those brand values, because your shareholders want their dividends now and they want them to be as big as possible. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting. When De Montezemolo left Ferrari at the end of... Or was it 14, 2014? Ferrari are making about 7,000 cars a year. Last year, despite COVID, they made 11,500. So it's already 50% up. No, more than 50% up, whatever that is, 67, 65, or whatever, you know, on where it was when De Montezemolo left. And that is because they're driving shareholder value. What is the SUV going to do to that? Because the one thing, you know, I didn't much like the look at it in those snaps, but I always reserve judgment for when I see these things on the road. So I'm not going to read too much into that. Um, but that won't matter. Um, you know, Bentley sold the Bentayga. I think um, you know, Rolls-Royce sell Cullinans, you know, and, and, and you know, certainly the first generation Bentayga and the Cullinan are awful looking cars. So, um, yeah, so it's, um, you know, that's not going to stop it selling. Uh, they are going to sell so many of these things. So, you know, will Ferrari be building 15,000 cars a year in two, three years' time? I, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. I, I, can, I can well believe it. I can well yeah, believe it I, and shareholders will be delighted. When I was a kid, even, no, not even when I was a kid, I think probably when I first got in this business 30-something years ago, they made about 3,000 cars a year. So they're probably going to be making five times as many cars as they did back then. Um, and you know, 
would I rather Ferrari was small and exclusive? Perhaps. But, you know, A, I'm not a Ferrari customer because I can't afford to buy Ferraris. Um, so I don't count. Um, and B, for all those people who want a Ferrari, um, the fact that Ferrari make enough to satisfy the demand for them is, is got to be a good thing, hasn't it? Uh, and, and I think that there's that philosophical argument about whether Ferrari should be building an SUV at all. Well, firstly, everybody else is, I think with the exception of McLaren, every other car manufacturer which can be considered to be a luxury product, be it luxury in a Rolls-Royce term or luxury just in a more generic, expensive term, they're all doing it. So, you know, you can't blame Ferrari for doing it. Um, we've un- we understand why the, you know, the reasons for doing it. But also, and this is the point that I've always made about the Cayenne, um, which I whinged about furiously when that came out. It's 20 years ago now. Um, but in fact, you know, if those cars make big profits, that means Ferrari can afford to make even better sports cars. So, you know, and I've said this on this podcast before, you know, I rave about a Cayman GT4 RS. Well, one of the reasons that car is so good is because Porsche is so rich because it sells so many SUVs. It can afford to make it that good. Um, And Porsche's margin on a GT4 RS compared to its margin on a Cayenne Turbo S I mean, it'd be very interesting to see, but it would be hilarious. It will, it one with the, you know, the, the Cayman margin will be a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the uh, Cayenne margin. So you'd say, well, stop building Caymans. Um, but of course, it's a, it's a synergistic relationship, isn't it? It's the credibility that provided by the, you know, the GT4 RSs and that lot, um, which make people want to buy Porsches um, and therefore Porsche SUVs. And it's the money that brought in by Porsche SUVs, which make cars like the KMG T4S so fantastically good to drive. So you've got to do both. So, you know, if it means, if a Ferrari SUV means better Ferrari sports cars, then net on balance, holding my nose slightly, I'm in favour of it. And look at what Porsche has been able to do in the 20 years since the KN arrived. Let's not forget that Porsche, not too long ago, was struggling along, um, producing dated cars yeah. um, well, it and it didn't have the resources yeah. didn't have the resources to build extraordinary um you know trend setting sports cars the way it can do now um i mean in the mid 1990s let's not mince our words porsche was going down the drain it had an ancient 911 it had the 968 which was actually you know a an evolved 924 from the mid 70s it had a 928 so you know it's most modern in the mid 90s it's most modern car went on sale in 1978 and you can't <laughs> can't survive yeah, like that yeah. and they needed to do something and look at it now and you know and without the suvs there's no way any of it would have been done um and pff, you have to see it in that context don't you Big picture, yeah. You have to see the big picture. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a, this whole thing about car companies going public. It's an important point because all of a sudden their purpose changes, yep. um, and we, yeah, I think we have to be mindful of it. But it's, I suppose, it's inevitable. Um, yeah. Well, we'll we'll wait and see. I mean, presumably we'll finally get a, a proper look at the new Ferrari SUV very soon, um, and we'll reserve judgment about how it looks until then. But I don't know. I mean, we'll always feel slightly conflicted, won't we? Yeah. But there's no stopping it now. It's not what it's not what I want a Ferrari to be. But if that makes no more better versions of Ferraris that I do want to be, then you know it's fine. Necessary evil. Fine. 
Should we talk about our new writer? Oh, our gosh. new contributor yeah, 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 to the yeah, Intercooler? Yeah. Have we announced this yet? Or no? Maybe we're maybe we're going to be so smart we're going to announce it at the same time. Or are we announce? Is this the we announcement? Will. This is the announcement, um, and we'll we'll post about it on Instagram at the same time that this goes out. Um, I'm going to let you have the big moment. Uh, we've got a new designer writing for us. Yeah. Um, we have Julian Thompson already, who's written some fantastic stuff uh, for us. Brilliant. Julian is on a bit of a sabbatical from the intercooler because um, he has gone to work for a an OEM, uh, which we can't talk about. But while he settles into that job, uh, he needs to have his hands fully on that day. Um, hopefully he will come back. In the meantime, however, um, we have managed to recruit Ian Callum to our ranks um and this makes me more happy than i can say i mean i've known ian for years everybody knows ian as the bloke who designed the aston martin db7 what maybe not everybody knows it was his first car because the first car he designed by himself whole first whole car he'd done bits of other cars um the circumstances in which he designed that car one of which was it was never meant to be an aston martin in the first place um, he has written about, and his first story is either on the app or going to be on the app imminently, which t- describes exactly that. Uh, and then, you know, he went on to design the Aston Martin um, Vanquish, um, DB9, um, regardless of what you may have heard elsewhere, um, and actually quite a lot of the original, oh, I say original 2005 Vantage um and he then went to jaguar and basically you know until he left jaguar two years ago been responsible for every jaguar that that, you know and you think about cars like um the f-type um the xj um that wonderful last xj um and and even the f-pace you know even you know the best looking suv out there i think um you know, his influence as a designer, uh, his talent, his skill is just, I mean, he is a, he is a global uh, legend in, the, in, in, in that world. And we are just delighted that he has decided to take a little bit of time out um, to spend, um, yeah, some time, you know, writing for us. Uh, couldn't be happier. Brilliant, isn't it? What a name to have amongst our roster. Um, and a great bloke as well. I I met him, I think, for the first time on the F-Type launch, the the very first F-Type launch, which was, what, t- 10 years ago almost? Was it 2013 or something? God, a while ago. Um, well, yeah, well, it would, yeah, it would have been something like that, yeah. Amazing, isn't it? I sat next to him at dinner, um, and as I often do, I just grabbed the menu, gave him a pen and said, sketch me something. Um, and he, he was good enough to do it. And he's just scribbled um, an F-Type in profile, which was lovely, I've still got it. And then he just did another one. He did the Escort Cosworth um, because he was part of that design team as well. So I've got this wonderful original sketch of an Escort Cosworth by Callum, signed by him. Um, And it's just one of those little sort of mementos that I treasure. Um, So now to have him writing for this thing that we've created is fantastic. It is. It is. I mean, he is, he is, he must be Britain's most highly regarded car designer um and you know it's a it's a pleasure and a privilege he's also he's just such a nice bloke he's such a good he's so um he's such a he's a petrol head he loves cars you know there are some designers not mentioning any names 
who just seem to be self-obsessed and loving the image of cars and what you know, he thinks they say about him. And, uh, and then there are some designers like Julian and like Ian who just love cars. You know, get Ian talking about short wheelbase Ferraris. You can't stop him. <laughs> um, you know and you know he just loves the things you know he's not just you know a bloke who is a gifted drawer who just happened to decide to apply his trade in the automotive arena um he's got a wonderful collection of really eclectic cars um and yeah he's he's a proper car guy as well as being a, an uber talent so as i said um it's just it's a it's a great great pleasure to have him with us yeah welcome in to the intercooler um Okay, well, we'll wrap that one up. Um, thank you, JBR Capital, for sponsoring the podcast. Um, and thank you all for listening. Um, please remember to rate and review the podcast. That's important. I talk about it every week because it's really, really important. Rate and review and subscribe and follow. Um, and of course, we now end um, our podcast episodes with a listener question. So if you want your question answered come up with a good one and send it across any way you like. Um, this week it's from John Dummigan. I hope I'm pronouncing your name there right, John. Um, and he wants to know, what are the automotive or motorsport adjacent things that you feel really help you to indulge or enhance your love of cars? For example, I love car detailing, collecting car models and sim racing. But what are, you, what are your car-related activities or hobbies that resonate with you? Gosh, what a good question. Um, books books i just i love car books from all eras as long as they are uh as long as they're meticulously researched um and beautifully written um you know so many people know an awful lot about cars so many people are able to write really well very few people are able to write really well about cars over the entire duration of a book let alone not the sort of 1500 words you and i used to knocking out um and from you know i've got books which were written right at the dawn of motoring uh, and right up to the present day so they're one for me um i do love a good decent toolkit i'm a hopeless mechanic i'm absolutely useless um but i do like just pottering about at the weekend with my old sheds because they're not very important so if you know if i break one or you know do something wrong it doesn't really matter very much um so that, i think those are probably the two sort of associated automotive things that i get most pleasure from what about you car media yeah so in all its forms um which you know i'm involved in that world so perhaps it's a bit glib but i just i love reading again brilliantly written stuff about cars particularly stuff that reveals something i didn't know before and also watching great videos um about cars so yeah that's how i if I'm not driving myself or, you know, with friends talking about cars, that's how I get my car kick is through car media. Um, and there's there's a lot of rubbish out there, but there's a lot of brilliant stuff out there as well. So it's a, it's a great time for it. So there you go, John. Hope that What a great question. question. Thank you, John. Um, yeah, keep them coming. Um, so thank you all for listening and we'll be back to talk to you again next week. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Winning is an everyday mindset, and we're here to help. I'm Craig Robinson. Join me and Coach John Calipari for Ways to Win. We're kicking off during March Madness. Cal's Kentucky Wildcats are in the hunt. So throughout the tournament, I'm going to call up my friend to ask about his wins, losses, and especially what he's telling his players in the locker room. You got to win every day. Find the Ways to Win podcast anywhere you listen. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.